Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. Donald Platt is the author of eight volumes of poetry. His most recent is Swans Down, Grid Books 2022. His poems have appeared in many journals, including The New Republic, American Poetry Review, Paris Review, Kenyon Review, Plowshares, New England Review, and Yale Review, as well as in the Best American Poetry 2000, 2006, and 2015. He is a recipient of two fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, three Pushcart Prizes, and the Center for Book Arts Chapbook Prize. Donald, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you, James. Just thrilled to have you here. I, I was really moved by your book. There's so much to talk about here. Uh, but I want to start with um, how Swansdown explores the uncertainty of mortality the anguish of losing family members, the deterioration of our bodies with the passage of time and so many other themes. But somehow you managed to balance the inherent heaviness of your subject matter with playfulness. And an example that I call out here in Goodbye Dance, you write, when my mother fell sick, grew short of breath and took six months to die, I got out there on the front porch. I hip hop around to music no one can hear but me. My neighbor asks, what possesses me? I tell her I am dancing the sun up and the hard rain down. Was this a conscious choice, finding a way to weave lightness into poems that were somber at their core? Well, you know, that's a good question. You're getting right to the chase here of the book. I'm like, wow, this is great. You know, like, <laughs> softball questions just like go right in there and let's just explore what you're doing and all that kind of stuff. No, James. I'd like to dive right I, I in. Your, I have to say, I just admire your audacity. Okay. I would, I'm not an interviewer, right? But you're boom. Okay. Right. Okay. Put me right on point there. Well, yeah, you know, I think that to answer your question here, uh, uh, your very good question. Uh, James, it's um, there's been a certain amount of, um, of, of of dark matter. Let's just put it that way. Dark matter in my recent life, in the last decade, put it that way. There have been a lot of uh, deaths. So uh, my father um, uh, passed away from Alzheimer's in 2006, and then uh, eight years later, my mom. Uh, and these are just, you know, these are natural deaths. They, they lived very long lives, actually. My dad lived to 90 years old, my mother to the age of almost 97. Uh, my mom uh, died in summer of 2014. And then four years later, my brother, um, who has Down syndrome um, and has a shortened life expectancy, died at 58 years old um, in uh, early January 2018. So there's uh, sort of, I think that, I mean, but, you know, everyone in their lives um, has dark matter, you know, one way or the other, right? You know, so I think then the poems are a way of acknowledging that dark matter, but at the same time, um, finding a, a way of continuing uh, going on and 
um, and enjoying everything that is, you know, the abundance actually that is around us. And so I think that, you know, they're, they're, they're poems that are worked out in the thick of the emotion of dark matter, but they are always reaching towards uh, this thing that actually has quite a lot of joy and lightness in it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that joy and lightness for me resides um, not uh, in many things, but certainly in, um, in our relationships with others. Uh, friends, uh, surviving family, um, but also in the natural world. So, I mean, there's, I take great solace. I'm right now, I'm looking out my apartment window and it overlooks um, the Wabash River and the trees that are lining the river are so lush, you know, it's just, it's just great to, you know, it's the, it's the end of summer. It's been a a really, uh, a very dry summer, but the trees are still doing their thing, partly because they're right alongside the river. Of course, they can grab water from, from the river, you know? Uh, so this is slightly turning into a metaphor, I guess, here as we, as we speak, you know? But there, so I guess, but yeah, so I am interested in the poems in actually following that river, okay? That is the river of continuance through, even if, um, if our own lives... Um, as they will stop, um, that river keeps going. Uh, and for me, that's a, a, a sense of great joy in, in that. Um, no, I think that's so, very effective. I think it's like the, your ability to, because I have, you know, when I go to open mics, I, you occasionally get a, a poet who's going through something very raw and intense and they're, right, right. And they're expressing that in the moment in a way that is so raw that you almost can't, it overwhelms the poetry and you've managed to cover these themes that are very dark, but in a way that doesn't overwhelm the poetry. It's very effective. I think it makes it easier to, you hear more clearly those, that dark elements. Anyways, I, I, it's, I thought well, you were doing it very actually. You're right, because if you, if you juxtapose the dark matter, the dark elements, uh, whatever we call them, with this other thing, then, um, then there's this wonderful tension, which actually is the tension of our lives, really. Right. I, you know? and, and then just aesthetically, of course, if you, uh, if you um, foreground, background, darkness with light or light with darkness, you know, then both of those things are going to stand out uh, um, because you have to have them together. Ultimately. Absolutely. No, I think it's very effective. Uh, so you already touched on your brother. Your book opens with a series of beautiful poems about your brother, Michael, and the health challenges that come with Down syndrome that ultimately took his life. Uh, in For My Brother with Trisomy 21, As He Lies Dying, you write, She'll say that at the wake they showed your body laid out on the bed to Marshall, your best friend. With the simplicity of the child, he still is at 55 years old, he asked, where's Michael? Jeannie replied, Michael's gone to heaven. He pointed, well then, who is this? How has writing about your brother in such detail in this book help you perhaps understand him in a different or more intimate way and also help with the grieving process? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, I just want to say that my brother Michael has actually been my muse uh, mm-hmm. for a long, long time. 
Um, some of my first poems, uh, first successful poems, are about Michael, really. And actually, when I was a kid, when I was like a kid, when I was at high school, you know, um, and I started, I really didn't start writing until I was in my 20s, but I did write one short story. I'm very proud of it, I think. Uh, and it was sort of a loosely disguised version of um, uh, uh, me relating to my brother. So this has been really, okay, Michael has been a central presence in my life, really, you know, in all sorts of ways. And I won't go into all the details and stuff. But I think part of it was, this, I will get to say this, was that um, my parents, it was very unusual. My parents, uh, my, Michael was born in 1958. And at that time, as one of the poems um, and mentions, actually, uh, the usual course of things was to institutionalize someone with Down syndrome. And my parents um, didn't want to do that. They understood that he had Down syndrome. I don't quite think that they understood all the implications of that, you know, in the larger sense of what their lives would be like with Michael or and, and everything. But they made the very courageous and very, for me, very laudable decision not to have Michael institutionalized, but to have him live a full, complete, and rich life with them, which he 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 did. Um, so I think that you know, um, so you know, so it's very unusual for the time, uh, actually. Um, but you know, and, and thank goodness, it's become um, actually quite. Um, quite a, a usual practice to quote unquote mainstream mm -hmm. individuals with Down syndrome. So, you know, I mean, there's a kind of a social element to the, uh, to the uh, cultural, historical, societal element to the poems too, I would say, you know, about Michael uh, having Down syndrome. But in terms of uh, what did I understand about Michael? First, I think it was your first. Yeah, I think uh, it's like did the writing when you, you know, as, as a poet, when you write about things, you have to re-experience them. You have to, you have to dig into them. You just, I think you, uh, when I write, I like love writing ekphrasis, ekphrastic poetry. And, and, and I appreciate the art in a different way because I'm looking at it so intensely. I'm just curious if, did you learn things about your brother through this process of writing about him? Yes. Well, I think the thing that really came across very most self-evidently for me is um, how close I am to him, mm -hmm. you know, uh, how deep uh, the bond between us runs. Uh -huh. So that was the first thing. I mean, we'd always been close. We've been, we were very close. We were a very close family, really. But, um, but I, I came to realize how much I love Michael, certainly. Through uh, through writing those poems, and then um, you know with the grieving process, sure, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I think writing poems it helps with that. There's no question. Uh, yeah, um, W. H. Auden has this poem. I forget which one, but the image is and the line is something like the the artist uh, uh, <clears throat> turns howling to his his canvas or to his page. Um, and I think, you know, there's a sense that, uh, you know, in that howling that is grief, one goes to the page or to the canvas and that that page or canvas is a relief actually mm -hmm. for us. It's a way, writing is a way of putting things, of giving order to what is essentially quite a chaotic experience. At least it seems so to me, yeah. you know your lives, right? So I think there's that sense of it. Not that uh, writing is primarily, it is catharsis, but I think the other thing that, that gets added for the 
for the writer, and I, I think I could also say maybe for the visual artist, is that um, order happens. Mm -hmm. It's in a certain pattern. Uh, and that's not going to change things. Uh, you know, it won't change the fact of Michael's death, for instance, right? But it gives one a sense that one has a little bit of control over it, that one can respond to it, that one can explore one's own emotions around uh, around a certain crisis event, you know? And I think there, so it's, it goes beyond catharsis. It's uh, no, I think it also externalizes it. It 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 also. Yeah, I know I've had to write as all poets at separate times do write poems in memoriam and usually without without any notice. You know, my father in law passed away earlier this year, and four days I'm later, so I'm reading. You know, a poem about him was very. Uh, it was unexpected. I mean, he was almost ninety. It was, but it's all in this case. It wasn't the day he knew that he was in the end. The, the yeah. but he didn't have a terminal illness. It, so it was sudden, um, but not in a way unexpected. But still very traumatic. And then trying to capture that in four days. Um, but I did. I did. Found for me this creating this piece of art that would live on a little bit um, was was helpful for me as an extended family member. So I, I, I love the way you articulate that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing you mentioned that I, you know is out of the out of, you, you talked about ephrasis and how yes. you loved looking at a piece of art and sort of I don't know whatever sort of absorbing it. You said I yeah. Forget it's, well, I mean I'm like I'll take photographs of go to yeah. museum, take a bunch of photographs, and then go home and I'll zoom in on them and really get into the detail and then research and what you know just everything I can you know research as much as I can to find raw material that I can use in addition to what I see. Yeah, that's lovely. That's a wonderful impulse because I mean I I, I love uh, writing about visual art, rock writing. I actually yeah, photography is like my little notebook basically. You know, mm. is you know I'm I'm kind of I'm lazy as a poet. I'm very lazy. <laughs> it's always like you know, it's like you know uh, it's like it's just like a chameleon. I'm I'm the chameleon on the rock, and the little fly goes by. My tongue goes up, <laughs> crack, black, grabs the fly. You know. <laughs> That's sort of my, my sort of my mo here, really. Well, know? I have a question about that coming up, actually. But I'll, I'll park the park the okay. thought of the chameleon uh, with the fly. I like that. Okay. Um, there's, the, there's this thing where you know um, I think that it's really. I mean, for me, I respond very strongly, get very excited about visual art, mm -hmm. images, and it's uh, it's a stimu it's a stimulus really for for writing. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so. Uh, throughout your book, this is a more technical question, most of your poems employ several patterns of indentation. Uh, for many years, I experimented with lowercase only, almost to a pathological religious degree that I backed away from, and minimal punctuation, and uh, employed lots of indentation and enjambment to capture the intended rhythm and expression that I was going for. Uh, how have your forms of poetry evolved over the years, and what is your thought process specifically for indentation as a visual technique? Sure, sure, absolutely. So one of the things you, I mean, if you look at most of the poems in that book, um, they do, they're written in tercets, and they're written in tercets that um, have alternate short and long lines. And the tercets have a reverse pattern. So if the ter first tercet, say, starts out, It'll start short, then it'll go long and then short. And then the next tercet will reverse that pattern 
i.e. it will be a long, short, long pattern in terms of line length. Um, this is actually um, a mode that I discovered very early on when I was writing, oh, probably I was 20, what, uh, 24, 20, about 28 years old, something like that. Um, it was actually suggested in a certain way by uh, reading the poet um, Jimmy Schuyler. I don't know if you know Jimmy Schuyler. No, to look New, York, New York, New York poet. With uh, O'Hare, very good friends with Ashbury. They were really close, Ashbury and Jimmy Schuyler. And um, so Jimmy Schuyler in, had these, has these beautiful long poems. Um, one is the, called um, uh, The Morning of the Poem. Uh, which is probably my favorite of all of, uh, of many favorites of Jimmy Schuyler's poems. And then uh, also another long poem called A Few Days. Um, he employed this kind of uh, long short line pattern, but he just did it in a block form. And then when I was a kid, kid, when I was 28 years old, I discovered, I discovered I was writing, I liked that. So I, oh, another thing that uh, it's like, you know, uh, this is back in the 80s, right? So C.K. Williams was like, you know, kind of cool and, and everything. And the way that C.K. Williams's poems are printed are they're printed, they have to be, they're very long lined, actually. Mm -hmm. They're like lines. Um, they're too long for the page, so they, they have to be run over and then, you know, indented, okay? And I really, this is not in, exactly intentional on C.K. Williams's part, but I loved the kind of the energy that got started and the rhythms that got started between having this long line versus the short line. Mm -hmm. So, so it, with, with sort of these things, this music, both C.K. Williams, uh, primarily from a book called Tar, and then also um, uh, my love for Jimmy Schuyler's longer poems, I just, it felt really like a natural rhythm to me. It started really to capture the way my mind works. I'm kind of like pretty prolix like i like a lot of language basically mm -hmm. i'm not minimalist. i'm not you just cannot accuse me i think of minimalism no i'm actually going more and more in my current work towards and towards more minimalism that's all about the story okay but it is about evolution you were asking about yeah yeah but it, so but okay so when i was when i was in 28 though what i found was that i could write these long lines short lines and then I thought, well, it's kind of blocky. So what if I put a stanza on them? And well, couplets kind of prosaic. But then I found this dynamite thing that happens when you use tercets and you have the reverse pattern. Basically, the pattern encodes motion because it's always, it's never quite the same, yet it is ongoing, you know? And so the deal is for me, that was the finding the way that my mind worked and my voice worked. Very, very, what should I say? It was very congenial form, very, con it actually expressed, I mean, you can see, I love to talk actually. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? I love to talk to you or whoever, you know, you, I actually love silence too. But when you get me going, it's like, when I'm really talking, then I like to follow out all the different tangents that my mind takes. And this form, this expansive form allows me to do that. And then another thing too, it also allows the long line allows for a kind of a narrative impulse and then you can attract it to the short line. And that actually is a moment when you can stage lyricism. Right, right. So you have both of those things. I like to think, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I like to think that the poem, the, uh, poem in this form can incorporate 
both a more expansive narrative anecdotal impulse and then also tighten up to a lyric moment within the same poem. Okay, so that was my basic form, you know, and for many years I just used exclusively that. Uh -huh. um, then, well, then and, uh, there are two other ways of approaching language that I employ all the time. One is, um, is actually syllabics. So I'm very attracted to, uh, I think, yeah, did I? Yeah. I'd have to go back and look at the contents and see if there are any syllabic poems actually in, um, in Swan's Down. But I do like the form very much because it's kind of an invisible form if you're mm -hmm. counting syllables, you know? And I kind of, I like form in a way to be not showcase, not to be too flashy, but to be there, you know, and give you kind of that kind of a, uh, a way of holding the poem together. So syllabics, I've uh, right now I'm actually using a lot of very short lines, a five syllable line to six syllable line, six syllable line. Um, so that's a recent development. This five, this short line is something I've just been doing in the last three years, essentially. Uh, uh, then um, there's also though. Um, the, the, what I just call lyric prose, uh, using that. And there's quite a bit of lyric prose in Swan's Down. Yeah. So poem like Fire, um, or, um, uh, Coney Island Avenue, Avenue, I think, uh, yes. Um, they're, they're in prose essentially. Yeah. But I like that lyric prose with, um, an inverted paragraph. So you actually, in terms of indentation, you have one line that is flush left, and then all the other lines in that in that paragraph have a have an indentation. I like I like indentation. Of course, destabilizes the poem in an interesting way. So that's my attraction to to indents of various sorts. I mean, I think that was uh, this is a wonderful example of how um, everything is intentional for poets, and uh, I loved how you dug into that with uh, uh, with Safia El Hilo, who I interviewed recently. We got into a whole discussion about ampersand versus the word and, and that triggered a whole thing. And you've just planted a seed in my mind now that I'm going to have to try to write a poem with long, short, long lines that that has a Morse code embedded in the poem that ties back to it. Now that'll be a tricky little, that's rattling in my head now. Anyways, that's a project for another day. Okay. Good, someone good, may good. have already done it or I may have just given someone a prompt. You know, I think that these kinds of talks between poets will, you know, will help inspire both of us. They get to sort of reframe some of um, the things that we do. Absolutely. You're, you employ ekphrasis as a device in several poems in this collection, uh, and you'll read a couple wonderful examples later. What is your approach to ekphrasics so that the resulting poems are more than just poetically descriptive? Now, when I asked this similar question to A.E. Stallings, who uh, writes wonderful poetry and wonderful ekphrastic poetry, you know, she says, well, ekphrasis can just be descriptive. That's not necessarily bad, although I think most there's it, it bridges to something else. So how do you approach ekphrasis? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, just first, though, I haven't, uh, you mentioned uh, A.E. Stallings. I haven't seen A.E. Stallings since uh, 1999, so yeah. it's a long ago, but we were we were at a conference together at Sewanee a long, a long while back. So anyway, I'm glad you're, you've been in conversation with uh, her. Yeah, yeah, that's neat, that's neat. So yeah, um, you know, in a word, and very simply, um, mm, uh, ekphrasis, for me, is when something in an image, and it, has, it calls out to me very strongly, and then 
I, what I have to do, if it's going to be a good ekphrastic poem, is I've got to explore as deeply as possible what that thing, or discover actually, what that thing is in the visual image that I'm writing about, what, why I'm attracted to it. Mm-hmm. So it's not just, for me, it's not just a description. No, I, you know, I mean, it could, I mean, well, I'll go back to, I'll circle back. But for me, generally, it's finding some way that the the visual image, the exterior exterior visual image will invoke some evoke something deeply personal within me. And so there's kind of like there, there's 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 the exterior image, there's the poet, and they've got to meet in some kind of or, or create actually some kind of space in the middle. Uh, and that space in the middle is the ekphrastic poem. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. So you know, it's um, I guess I've always been sort of stimulated by visual things. Partly, I think, because my mom was an amateur watercolor painter. And so she was always painting. There were a lot of images around the house. And then she would, she and my dad were, would take uh, my brother and me to museums regularly. So it was just kind of this thing. We did a lot of looking in that, in that family. And so it seemed like a natural thing for me. And so, I mean, you know, I mean, honestly, ekphrasis is one of my major kind of modes of being in a poem, maybe perhaps too much so, but it is just, it happens that that's, that's the way I am. That's the way my mind slash soul seems to work. So yeah, it's huge in my, in my work as a whole, my, my, my writing as a whole, ekphrasis is very big. There's this um, volume that's kicking around uh, called um, Tender Voyeur, which is um, based on many, many images from the uh, painter John Singer Sargent. And, um, you know, it's a whole book of ekphrasis, essentially. So, yeah, yeah, it's a it's it's a fave. (laughs) Yeah. And it also provides the prompt, which poets are always, always looking for a prompt or something to get that blank page kicked off. Right, right. And maybe to, I mean, I have to, in some ways I have to resist, at this point right. I have to, re- you have to, re- I have to resist the ekphrastic impulse because it's almost too easy for me to do, you know? So it has to be something that str- the call has to be very strong yeah. for me. And I have to recognize it and say, okay, then I'm going to write that poem. So or, I always write it and then throw it away. Yes, true. So you have several uh, long poems in this collection. Uh, One built around, I love this poem, around the ritual of kissing Oscar Wilde's grave and another fire wonderfully blending a text from 1666 about the Great Fire of London into a personal account of you and your wife working through medical issues. Um, I don't want to talk specifically about those poems themselves, but more about how do you approach revising and editing a long poem which has its own challenges of how long is too long how edited out is too edited how much detail do you include how is it overloaded i've written a number of long poems as well and i find the editing process is different than something shorter yeah 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 that's a good question um well with a longer poem in general as a writer, I tend to overwrite. So it's, which is in a way a blessing because it's easy to cut back, right? Mm-hmm. 
uh, yeah. So you just you just uh, find the pieces that the things that slow down a poem, you know, those passages, and you just cut them, you know, and and also too in the process of cutting, as you know, it's like you sometimes find these wonderful juxtapositions, you know, you can jump from from A to not to B, but from A to K, right. and that's you know what I mean, just the the distance of the jump increases, you know, the associative jump. And that's always good, right, for for poems, you know. Um, Yeah. Um, But, but, (laughs) you know, you bring up those two very specific examples, and I'm thinking about them each, you know, uh, and how they were written, you know. Um, And what I did with both of them is I took time to write them. I mean, I took a, a long time. I like, I'm doing this less and less because I'm, I'm getting more in a hurry uh, for various reasons. But if you slow down the writing process, then there's this wonderful thing that happens. That I think the poem deepens a great deal if you slow down the writing process. Because I don't know, you're, it's, you're, your unconscious, of course, is working on, on the poem you know, uh, night to night, week to week, month to month, you know? And so, you know, it just, it just, whatever, whatever it, it, the layering that happens over the course of time seem for me anyway, is often richer in associations in a surprise of direction than if I write a poem in a day or two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in both those poems, certainly with the Oscar Wilde poem, it, I, so I went to, went to, okay, so the poem you're talking about, I, I went to this wonderful cemetery in Paris called Père Lachaise. And basically there are a lot of these, you know, very famous and very wonderful artists and writers buried there. I took a lot of, we were talking about photographs as my notebook. I took a lot of photographs of Père Lachaise. And then I would I went home, and then I took a, a I don't know I think a month or two at least to write this poem, basically working from photographs, working from essentially an ekphrasis mode, you know, uh, even though it doesn't necessarily seem like ekphrasis as such, you know. I mean, I just set myself in the graveyard and talk about the graveyard, basically, you know. Uh, but it's, it's essentially, in the the way it was composed, is was composed ekphrastically. Mm-hmm. Just to, just to say. But I actually had to do, oddly enough, I think quite, I mean, I tweaked little things there. I showed it to two poets I trust. I got their comments. They had some good comments. But there was not a whole lot of revision. Mm-hmm. That went. But interestingly enough, when it was published, it was actually for various reasons. Okay, so the poem was accepted by, by an anthology like way back, right? And it was one of those anthologies that, you know, really never happened, but it's almost going to be ha- going to happen. It's an anthology of long poems, right? And for really about at least eight years, this project was, you know, almost going to happen. And then finally, it just the, the, the person who put it together, together and collected, I think, some very wonderful long poems said, you know, it was very despondent, could not find the right publisher, et cetera, et cetera. So I had not sent the poem out for a long, long time. But then, so it just got published, actually, like within the last uh, few months, uh, you know, uh, and anyway, so, but the editor of, at Fence, uh, I love this, I love this stuff when it happens, right? Yeah. They really like the poem, 
but they said, geez, you know, could you kind of like cut off the very beginning and then cut off the very end of the poem? And they were right. Mm. I didn't, I didn't need either of these things. You know, I love it. I love, I'm very, I'm very actually very, uh, what should I say? Very open. I love, I love suggestions. And if they're good suggestions, I have no, no qualms in taking them at all. It's like ego goes as absolutely beyond, you know, just, it's, it's beside the point. Who cares if I have my ego? You know, I really, I don't have any ego really in a way when it comes to poems because it's like, and the, and the revising of poems, if someone can make a suggestion and it's better, I'm totally for it. It's just like, thank you. I bow down to those. Totally. Editors. Yeah. I want the best poem possible. And if that is augmented by feedback, I, that's yeah, great. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I think it was probably Rebecca Wolf uh, and her editors that just said, hey, do you really need the beginning? You really need the end. And, Bingo. It was fun. And then actually the um, the other poem, Fire, you know, not a whole lot of revision went into that one, honestly. I mean, you know, I've, I've a total, listen, I've like a total revision head, you know what I mean? I'm like, well, let's revise it. Let's take it apart. Let's rebuild it. Let's do all these things. I mean, my favorite story in the world is W.H. Auden, you know, who I obviously think a lot of as a poet, you know, one of, one of his friends surprised him uh, he had he had taken a poem and just scissored all the words out of the poem and spread all the words on a carpet. And he was just rearranging all the words. <laughs> so the friend said, Winston, what have you done to your poem? And he said, oh, I'm just revising it. <laughs> I, 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 totally, that's like my, my, say my ultimate like revision thing, right? I think that's just brilliant, you know, to have that attitude that you can, the poems are, to, and they are, they're made out of these total mobile parts and you just take them apart, right? But sometimes you get really lucky and then things kind of fall almost into the right place if, you, if you're slow and then don't mm. need to be nudged too much. Yeah, yeah. And so it's weird because you, you focus on two poems that they're long poems, they didn't have that much revision. Yeah, no, sometimes I've had poems almost fall out of me, but I think I've been chewing on them for a while in the background, and then I'm ready to write them down. And it's not like I just started writing the moment where I physically start writing. Yeah, you know, this is really important. I think it's very important just to chew, as you say, to sort of masticate these yeah. things. You know what I mean? Like your cow. You know, I mean, I, it's almost, you get something that's really good and you know that it's possibly really good. You almost want to refrain from writing it and just give it more time. Yeah, because you may lock it into something and get too connected, too attached to something because you've written it down now and it feels a little more permanent than it really should feel. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, okay, so case in point, you know, I have this thing called an essential tremor which is, and there's no known etiology to this thing, but my right hand shakes, right? Mm -hmm. And I've always wanted to write a poem called Essential Tremor. I think it's a brilliant title, Essential Tremor. I mean, right, you know, yeah. Zagajewski has a book called Tremor, but this is Essential Tremor, so I feel like it's different enough. But I've tried for years, right, to write in a poem called Essential Tremor, right? You know, and they really weren't very good, you know what I mean? But just recently, literally in the last six months, I think I may have managed to write Essential Tremor. But literally, it's taken 20 years to write Essential Tremor. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I think that there are poems that you chew on for years, and then all of a sudden, it's the right time, and they come out. Yeah. Right. So I've got one more question before I hand the mic over to you to read uh, some selections from your book. 
Uh, when reading Caddy, another poem I love, I get the sense of you seeing poetry while you were in the moment, uh, kind of like things we see and chew on. You write, I read the large sign, today's course rules posted on two freestanding boards whose hinged tops lean together to form an upside down V. I have to ask Irwin to explain the rules. The first is carts scatter. Oh, that means we're supposed to drive our golf courts in the most unpredictable patterns possible across the fairway so we don't make ruts by going all the same way. Were you writing this poem in your mind while you were playing the part of a caddy for a day, or did you replay the experience later to create the poetry, or a bit of both? That is a good question, yeah. yeah so I was, I'm talking about, you know, we were just talking about here just holding the poem, refraining from it, writing it, and everything, you know, uh, and just letting it build slowly. But no, I think there's another kind of poem where I, anyway, I feel like I walk into a poem, mm. basically. Do you know what I mean? You're just, yeah. oh, this is like, this is like a poem happening around, you know, and, I, and then I just go, and, I just, and then I can just sort of sit back quietly and just let it happen, you know what I mean? And so sort of just absorb the images, whatever it is that might be, you know, in there, right? And this happens not, yeah, quite frequently, I would say, you know, not all the time, but but quite frequently. And, I, and you love it as a poet, right? You just go, ah, this is like, this is a gift, you know? Yes. This, this, this experience, whatever it is that's happening here, where there's echo, you feel like you're in a in this echo chamber where things start to resonate, you know, and that is uh, that's magic when it happens. And then basically, your job as a poet is not to lose that that moment and to write it down as best you can. You know, uh, there's this wonderful thing. Oh, what's her name? Hold on, let me just go back to my bookshelf for a moment. Sure. Um, yeah, Ruth Stone is wonderful on this. She um, she says, <laughs> you know, it's like she sees a poem. But I think she's she totally like it's a literal thing for her. Like she sees it in the air, right? And she has to she sees it s e e s sees the poem, but then she has to seize it s e i z e it. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, if you don't, if you let that moment cool. If you don't work in the moment on it, then it gets it's hard to get yes. the poem. Yes. Do you know? Uh-huh. So it's, it's it's a weird thing. Sometimes you have to be you kind of there's a, you exercise restraint. You don't write about something, you let it build, you know? But when you have these kinds of experiences where everything seems to be coming together in a pattern then you have to write it and you have to write it then, I believe. At least for me, and apparently for Ruth Stone, who literally would see the poem and she would hit her images to run after it and grab it by the tails and get a bird image or something, you know? And, and uh, so. Yeah. Oh, it's a beautiful, I had that exact experience with a poem that was actually turned into an animated short film last year. Uh, a poem called Tethered, where I was walking with my wife along the Pacific shore, and I saw this bell buoy out in the distance rocking, and I was thinking, what would it be like to be that bell buoy, sitting there tethered all year round, this important job, but totally isolated, and I told my wife, hold on a second, and I got out my phone, and I wrote down tethered, and I wrote down several images, and I was just like, that whole rest of the walk, I was just like, it was like yeah. there. It's like you said, it was in the air and I had to just suck it in before I let it. And if you don't suck it, if you don't breathe it in at the moment, you'll forget yes. it. It'll be, it'll disappear. It'll, it'll get blown it'll, away. 
yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. There's, 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 there's one, 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 one little one anecdote. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm very loquacious. Oh, that's not a ditto. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think there's this wonderful anecdote about Tom Waits. Um, so Tom Waits is like driving along the goddamn LA throughway and uh, gets an idea for a song, right? And <laughs> and then he looks up at the sky and say, says, Muse, can't you see I'm driving? I cannot do this. <laughs> exactly. You have got to come back at a more convenient time. But the trouble is, of course, for the Muse, there is no convenient time. It's yeah. right that moment. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Well, now I'm going to turn the mic over to you to read selections from Swansdown. Black Prince. Dead brother, you've become the Black Prince that Paul Clay painted on a square foot of canvas mounted on wood. You were the sovereign of the dead, black silhouette of an African prince on a black brown background. So it's almost impossible to tell where your body ends and the surrounding night begins. You wear a crown that is a thicket of gold thorns. Your eyes burn, jade stones that glow radioactive green in the dark. Their half-life is forever. Your nose of pure gold, a reversed capital L, sans serif, angles left. Your lips, two horizontal bars, one gold, one red, are speechless. You wear a heavy gold collar carved with hieroglyphs no one can translate. You're this black-on-black black icon I come to pray before. Black prince, ruler of the full moon that shines in the upper left corner of Clay's painting like a golden Russian Easter egg. We are your people. We all shall walk death's middle kingdom and bow down unto you. But on the other side of death's continental divide, you were my brother. You had Down syndrome. You put on a crash helmet that buckled under your chin and learned to ride a white donkey named Billy Boy. The equine therapist led you on Billy Boy by the halter around a circle of orange traffic cones in a sandy outdoor arena. She raised a wooden broom handle high and asked you to reach up one arm, then the other, stretch as far as you could and touch it. You did. Billy Boy is still alive. You like to say, that's right. In this life, you needed no other words. Today, the sun is shining. That's right. I had a bicycle crash and could have died. That's right. Brother, you died on the 8th of January. It snowed. Now, it's mid-July, sound of a distant seven-gang lawnmower, smell of mown grass borne to me on the west-southwest wind. That's right. Brother, be my black prince, my mystery, sign of the world I'll never understand. In your four-fingered hand, you hold out to me a lemon, a live and golden hand grenade. Cloud study. I keep returning to John Constable's study of clouds. 
oil on cardboard, six by seven and a half inches. It shows purple-gray thunderheads, one patch of blue above low hills and two small trees flanked by shrubs in the left foreground. A sketch en plein air, a half hour's worth of work at most. It catches exactly one scrap of sky and shifting sunlight on a blustery day in 1820. The year King George III died in Windsor Castle, blind and insane. The year 50,000 Scottish weavers went on strike and printed a proclamation calling for a new provisional government. Their leaders were caught, hanged, and then decapitated for good measure. This cloud study survived that history. Two minutes later, the clouds would have taken on a different cast of light and shape, just like the thunderheads now piling up above the Liffey. I hobble out of Dublin City Gallery, take a bus to the river, sit on a park bench with a Ziploc bag of ice on my swollen knee. It's wet cold, makes the joint ache. My body is breaking down, bone spur under the right kneecap. At 58, I watch young men and women in black sweats run along the river Liffey. Abana Liffey, Anna Liffey, river that crosses the plains of life. I envy them. Once I too could run over the asphalt, almost without knowing I inhabited a body whose knees might seize up and swell. I will not run again in this life. Cirrus and cumulonimbus scud across the blue escutcheon of sky. Suns blazon through rain rampant. My life is a cloud study for some larger landscape. John Constable never got around to painting. It hangs in a gilded frame. People stare at it before passing on to more important canvases, to Renoir's Les Parapluies, women and men opening shiny black umbrellas in a Paris park. There, a mother shelters her two daughters under an umbrella meant for one. The younger daughter holds a wooden hoop she has been rolling along tamped dirt paths, whipping it with a stick to keep it spinning before the rain settled in. Renoir painted this small family in his lush, impressionistic style. Five years later, after visiting Italy and studying Piero della Francesca's frescoes, he came back and finished the painting in his new Maniere Egre, or harsh style. He handled the gray silk folds of the auburn-haired woman's dress on the left as if they were granite to be sculpted. She carries a market basket filled to the brim with shadow. To approach old age, one needs a new, harsher style. Here, by the Liffey, mothers push screaming infants and strollers. Five teenagers in blue jeans and bright yellow or green raincoats walk by, joking, texting on cell phones, smoking. One girl and her boy hang back, embrace, French kiss a long 10 seconds. Another boy shouts over his shoulder, get a room. A pair of mute swans preens and swims down the river Liffey, whose amber waters mirror how the clouds pass. 
avalanche of cumulus that hangs forever on the burnished surface, unrippling in my memory. Vast sky surf, cloud after cloud cresting, breaking, to be washed away to blue nothing. Each of us, lovers, mothers, runners, me, no more than wind-blown swans down. First crocuses. They are the colors of my dead father's Lenten chasuble, royal purple with one huge gold cross as he celebrated the early Sunday morning mass. No, these crocuses are the colors of my first girlfriend's striped panties as I groped her on the balcony of the Mahewi Theater. We were watching the Bolsheviks in Dr. Zhivago wait in silence with their machine gun under tall pines for tiny soldiers in white tunics to walk closer across a wheat field studded with poppies before opening fire. After the gun rasped out its hacking coughs, the Red Army Battalion crossed the waist-high wheat field to find they had executed boy soldiers, students at St. Michael's, a local military school. Golden, the wheat field. Purple, the shadows that the tall pines cast. Red, the poppies and the white tunics splashed with blood. It was too sweet communion wine. White wafers on the gold-plated paten my father held aloft and blessed. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him that taketh away the sins of the world. Sin of that machine gun stuttering, pronouncing its idiot, one word sentence on the bodies of boys barely 15. David Lane, director of Dr. Shivago, shot the movie mostly near Madrid in midsummer. He recreated Russian winter by buying hundreds of tons of marble from a nearby quarry. He had the stone ground down to a fine white powder and spread the snow that wouldn't melt across five acres of a Spanish plain for a single cavalry charge. In the title role, Omar Sharif complained of David Lane. He considers everybody on the set, everybody who is helping to make the film, as objects rather than as people. They are the things that are making his film. And well, you can see how easy it is to be terribly unhappy and rather hate him for it. I know that I have at the end of many days shooting felt terrible hate for him. A son renouncing the father who gave him the best role of his career, who said, He's a very sensitive actor, and we happen to work very well together. And I thought I could get this Russian poet out of him. Imperious father who liked to say, all right, Omar, action. But who told Sharif to let the other actors in Chivago act. You don't have to play anything at all. They will all be better than you. You must never be wonderful at any shot or any scene that you are playing. I don't want anyone to say that you are good. You will be normal, completely nothing, no acting at all. But at the end, when people see the whole film, they will say, you are good. At the end of his life, Omar would admit, I loved David Lane. 
And when he said this to me, it was an order. I never tried to act in the film. I was completely real. At Verikano, Omar still looks out the frost-ferned window that thaws to a field of daffodils and birches waving in the wind. The balalaika plays. Omar looks and looks with wide, brown, sorrowing eyes that see nothing but a single daffodil that dissolves into Julie Christie's face, stunned to see Yuri enter the dusty library where she bends over an open book in shadow. Crocus's orange pistols are the size of my first girlfriend's swollen clitoris beneath her wet silk purple panties striped with gold. Her breath's sharp intake. It all comes back, but only for one moment. I've heard she manages a bank, is married, has three children. I do not want to spoil that hour in the dark by seeing her again. I won't whisper her name. Life is unreal as an epic film fed reel by reel into an ancient projector that stutters, then breaks down. My father died from Alzheimer's. He forgot everyone except my mother, who now is dead. One day I too will close my eyes won't see that this spring's crocuses are all there is. Oh, it was so wonderful hearing you read those poems. You have a, a, a beautiful style of reciting your poetry that has clearly been honed over the years. So I want to, because not all poets have figured that out. So that was a wonderful performance of your poetry. I really enjoyed that. Thank you very much, James. Uh, yeah. So in Black Prince, just a couple of questions before we say goodbye. In Black Prince, you use Exfrastus, which we've spoken about multiple times, to paint an absolutely beautiful, touching portrait of your brother. Um, how did you make this connection between this particular painting and your brother? Was it you saw it and you made that connection or it lingered with you? Um, and how did you approach interleaving Exfrastus with images of your brother, in this, which is so effective in this poem? Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks first. Um, yeah, you know, this is this is this interesting thing. You know, we were talking earlier about um, letting a poem ling, uh, sort of uh, be there for a long time before writing it, you know? So I've always wanted to write a poem about this particular painting. I mean, for years. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an obsession of mine. I think it's a very beautiful, uh, striking, disturbing image, basically, you know? Uh, you know, I have no idea really what Clay, quote unquote, meant or mm. wanted to convey, you know, but that's really kind of the wonderful thing, right? You know, uh, an artist, maybe especially, I mean, I think, you know, poetry is closely allied to semantics, so it's different, right? Meanings and stuff. But, you know, but, a, but you know, put out a visual image and, you know, is it something saying something about race? Is it saying, what is it saying? I, you know, I have no idea what Clay meant, but it's out there. It's out there for us to ponder and to be perplexed by, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to write about Black Prince for years, but didn't, the occasion never seemed to come up until after, you know, about maybe six months after my, my brother's death. And then I knew that the two of them should go together. We put these things together. 
And it's just, I mean, it's, you know, it's like, part of it is like this, I think, James, for me, in the writing of it, honestly, is that um, my brother was gone, but the Black Prince remained, and he was the Black Prince. And so that I could talk to him now by looking at Clay's painting, mm -hmm. you know, and have a dialogue going on with the dead, essentially, which I think is very important, by the way, in the grieving process. I think you have to, I mean, for me personally, I guess, I've always wanted to talk to my personal, my beloved dead and to keep that, you know, I mean, you know, I think that's part of the grieving process. You mm -hmm. talked. So this is, this, this bit of ekphrasis became a way that I could do that, that I could reach out to my brother through the painting, if you will. Beautiful. I'm so glad I asked uh, for the extra detail there. And then finally, um, First Crocuses has wonderfully specific details. Uh, the detail of creating a Russian winter by grinding down tons of marble into a fine white powder, the vivid images of your first girlfriend. You know, most of my poems start with piles of images and lines that I then mold into poems and form. I kind of imagine I'd never sculpted, but I imagine a sculptor with blocks of clay does something similar. They starts with this just this raw material and then figures out what it turns into. Um, when writing your poetry, in this poem in particular, how do you approach creating and sculpting images, and not just images, but research? Uh, I'm presuming that you didn't know all these cool things about Dr. Zhivago going in. Uh, research, I've mentioned this in multiple interviews in this series of interviews about research is something poets do a lot of uh, as in terms of writing. So how did you take all this raw material and, and start molding it into a poem? Yeah, well, you're right. I and mean, there a lot of research did go into it, really. Yeah. So I was really, you know, what it really boiled down to was coming the internet for finding and finding very obscure interviews. I mean, these, you know, I mean, it took it took more than several days to find this. And then you listen to them and you kind of like, you know, I'm always looking in research and I do a lot of research on, on certain poems, no question. But I'm always looking for the detail that is so specific and so revealing and will give me an angle on a character or whatever. So it might be something like this great stuff that Omar Sharif says about David Late when he's actually making the film, right? And then the opposite, David Late is saying, oh, everything is just hunky-dory. It's great. I got this great actor, you know, we're just, we get along so well. It's like, no, you don't. You know? <laughs> it's like, you know, it's sort of, and then it becomes, you know, you can feel that, that sort of that, uh, what should I say? You know, that this ultimate thing between father and son, right? Where at least my my experience, I don't know how you know everyone else does it, but there's a there's a certain amount of friction between fathers and sons. I think you know in the maturation process, uh, on the son's point of view, that has to happen, right? You know, uh, so it's like this is all kind of writ large. But yeah, so you have all these details, right? And you find all these details, and then it's the question is like how you play them, basically, you know. And I try to not think it through, mm -hmm. you know. I, I think that's the wrong thing. Like, when am I going to do this? When am I gonna... You just got to go from one line to the next line to the next line. And you have this wealth of detail in your head and you don't know really how you're going to play it, but you just let your associative imagination tell you when it's time that this detail enters the poem, you know? So there, there Gregory Orr, poet, uh, I don't know if you know Gregory Orr's work, very, really wonderful, especially, uh, I should be so 
<laughs> Snyder. He wrote great early poems on it. You know, he really did. I mean, you know, Greg, please forgive me, Greg, you know, but you did. You wrote these amazing poems uh, at a very young age. Anyway, so Greg said, once told me that uh, I worked with him. I had the wonderful opportunity, pleasure, honor to work with him very closely. And Gregory Orr is a wonderful teacher. Um, and he once told me that there are basically two ways that poems get constructed. And it was, he went to the, uh, the thing of sculpture that you, you mentioned, right? And he says, well, you can take this big block of marble or whatever, and you just cut away, right? Right, you, right. You find the image, right? The other way though, is that you, you have a, a structure you have kind of like a, actually something that's made out of wire and you take clay and you're just putting the clay around the structure. You're mm -hmm. building it up that way. So it's either building it up or, you know, compression, you know, taking away. For me, in this particular poem, because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a great believer in cutting and revising and all that kind of stuff. But for me, it's again, it's kind of a, a process of accrual, of adding actually, rather than taking away. You start with a, an, a certain image and you just let that image guide you. Hmm. And then that image connects to another movement of thought or emotion or feeling. And then you have this wealth of bank of, of images. And now it's, you realize that now it's time for that detail to come into the public. And then you play that detail and then you let that detail determine what the poem is going to do next. In other words, it's like not really me conscious me writing it's more poet me as channel for something else something greater honestly coming through and that i believe is for me is the easiest way to approach the writing process the the will the the reason all that the, the intellectual stuff can happen later you know when you're in, in a certain process part of revising but that initial putting a draft together i try to keep my own, my own thoughts, sort of uh, sense of how I'm going to determine the poem rationally outside. Mm. You know, I, just, I, I let, try to let that go. Um, there's this wonderful, brilliant. Oh my goodness! I think what is her name? Um, fiction writer. Oh my God! It's like, uh, oh Lord! I have to. I'm really bad on names. I'm terrible. <laughs> I can relate. There's this wonderful fiction writer, very popular. You guys can look it up on, on YouTube. Okay? Yeah, this, is now, this is now a quiz. This is a test, a, a little Easter egg hunt for the listeners, yes. Yes, exactly. Okay. So this wonderful, brilliant writer did this TED talk on, um, on, the, on the word genius, really. And the word genius, of course, in the romantics said genius, this individual, incredibly gifted, right? You know? Uh, who somehow or other, you know, writes these things or paints these things or composes these things, right? And, you know, there is, there are geniuses, absolutely, you know? I mean, my God, I was just, was it last night? Yeah, I was listening to, to Beethoven's pastoral, pastoral symphony. I mean, this is, this is, this is amazing. Yeah. It is, it's kind of like, unlike Beethoven, you know, Beethoven full, is unlike the Beethoven of the Ninth Symphony or the Fifth Symphony. It's just this great, un. It's just this unforced, beautiful music, and you get, and it's, it's and not long. It's, it takes about half an hour, maybe tops the whole symphony, and it's like, wow, that's genius. That it, it really is. I mean, mm. no question about it, right? 
But there's the older idea of genius, which is that genius is a spirit that inhabits a certain place, a certain locality. This is the Roman and Greek idea that a genius, or the Greeks would call it a daimon, D-A-E-M-O-N, is a spirit outside you that inhabits a certain place. And that as an artist, what you have to do is you have to get in touch with the genius and let the genius speak through you, that outside spirit. And I'm very much a proponent of the latter kind of uh, sense of artistic creation, that what we need to do as writers, as artists, is to put ourselves somehow, and it takes a lot of time, a lot of practice, put ourselves in touch with that exterior spirit that inhabits a certain, the locus of a certain poem, and let that genius, which is really outside me, speak through me to create that poem. And then, and then it becomes like, and then you can throw away all these things about pride, ego, will, and a bunch of things which I actually think get in the way of the creative process. That's a, that's a wonderful way to wrap this interview. I've so enjoyed uh, talking to you, and, and I loved your book. I uh, loved reading it twice, which is absolutely necessary to figure out what on earth to ask you. And uh, you just, you just, you've given me lots of uh, ideas rattling in my head about how to approach future writing, and I hope for listeners as well. So thank you so much for taking time to share your poetry and your voice today. You're most welcome, James, and thanks so much for having me on your podcast here. Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings.com.